You're listening to the 10th episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. A lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going wrong, but it is not an attack on faith. This is about depression. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my life that occasioned the writing of a song from my concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. This episode of the podcast deals with the final song on that album. I'll continue for the two of you. Episode 10, Words Cannot Express. Sigmund Freud's idea that repressed emotions build up pressure inside you and burst out in unexpected ways if you don't vent them has fallen into disrepute in recent decades, but when I was writing the songs on this concept album, I definitely felt they were therapeutic. What it felt like was as if I had a bunch of random thoughts and feelings strewn around the inside of me like a stiff, crap-scented wind had scattered everything that had been on top of a desk all across the floor and around the room. When I sorted out my thoughts and feelings enough to form them into words, into poetic, story, and song structures, it soon felt like someone had come in, gathered up all the scattered stuff, and sorted it and filed it in alphabetical order in the correct file folders in the filing cabinet. And having those random thoughts and feelings all tidied up and put away exactly where I'd know what they were and where to find them felt like control. It felt like, for the first time, some kind of sense finally reigned inside me there. It felt better. That's what moving on looked like for me, going through and identifying the thoughts and feelings, sorting them out, and ordering them into a song or even just a lyric, maybe recorded, and then all of that seemed a bit dealt with. It had been condensed down into a form that could be shared and discussed more easily with others, and then compared to their own situations. Feelings don't have any logic to them, and you can feel two or three completely contradictory things at the same time. You can fear something might happen, and also fear it might not happen at exactly the same time. This isn't the way, hopefully, with your thoughts. Words and sentences and poems have a lot of structure and logic to them. Ideas and feelings will need to be understood and shaped to fit into those structures, which requires making sense of them and ordering them, like giving a six-year-old who is running around the room knocking things onto the floor his crayons and persuading him to sit in a chair and work on learning his letters and numbers. So, putting swirling messes of confused feelings into words, phrases, and songs has always been good for me. It kind of tames them, boxes them up to be stored on a shelf in the basement where you won't trip over them in daily life. Don't confuse me making art out of my past with me continually agonizing over it in daily life. The intention behind this song, like many of the others written at least partly during class at university, was to depict words creaking under the weight and bending and snapping as the intensity of what they were being used to express proved too much for them. This is why the contradiction and oxymorons. Cold ashes somehow get rekindled into fire that both crashes on a shoreline as water normally would and is also clearly a pale black color. Stuff like that. When I was writing these songs, I was enjoying the newfound freedom to buy comic books if I wanted to and was very into Wolverine, another hairy, angry little Canadian like my father and I. The idea of having metal blades that sprang out of your hands when you were angry seemed pretty cool. But in this song, I was imagining my feelings themselves having indestructible claws that sliced easily through sense and reason like a hot knife through butter. Well, that's cool, bub. The intention was always to have a sequel concept album, tentatively called Peter Gray Grows Up, to continue the story. And I wrote one. But this song was where I would be leaving things on this album. 
Conrad, an experienced francophone musician who was briefly a part of our brethren group in Montreal, once did me the honor of listening to some of my early recordings of song concepts. You can almost never get that if you are an amateur. He gave me advice, too. He said, not to spread myself too thin, and not to try to play all of the instruments myself. For the most part, I've had to, so very thin indeed have I spread myself musically, thin as butter over too much toast, as it were. Conrad said it really sounded to him like I knew exactly what I was doing, not in the sense of sounding experienced or trained, but in sounding purposeful. He said, you even seem to know what you want for, excuse me, junk guitar sounds, noise guitar sounds. I think that was a pretty big compliment, seeming purposeful, kind of like Mike, a roommate's visiting friend years ago, hearing my music back in the day and saying, I was going to tell you how to get a cleaner and less roary and echoey sound, but it kind of sounds like you're doing that on purpose. He didn't know why I'd do that to make the inside of me something other people could hear on their stereos. Mike was a comic book artist and musician who drew everything to look cute, freakishly large heads and eyes, profoundly unsettling, baby superheroes, baby supervillains, and baby aliens and baby monsters. I asked him why he wanted to do that, and he didn't know either. I suppose I was raised to think of distorted guitar as dangerous, virile, exciting, and powerful, but really, really bad sounding. It's just noise! It's not even music, adults would say, 15 or 20 years after Jimi Hendrix had died. The world's gone crazy! Everyone seems to love that terrible racket. No idea why. There's no beer in our house, no cigarettes, no television, and no distorted guitar. When I brought an electric bass guitar home from the music room at high school, I was a trumpet player, my mom worried that it looked too loud. Just the guitar itself. I didn't have an amp or anything. What would Mrs. Hale say if she saw you with that? My mom asked. Oh, probably something racist about interracial dating being against God's plan laid out in scripture. I didn't respond. Some old brethren people still really thought it was Morris Day in the time to crack down on any outbreaks of jungle love among the children of the Lord's people. Oh we, oh we, no to that, they thought. My own crushes were certainly not racially limited. I was an equal opportunity unrequited lover. Once I managed to get my head wrapped around Neil Young's distorted guitar sound, having loved his lyrics and simple acoustic songs, the bad-sounding part of that view about distorted guitar went away, but the rest of it remained. So that's where my sludgy, distorted guitar preferences sprang. Hey, hey, my, my, rock and roll will never die and all that stuff. I still don't get why anyone likes Funko Pops and Bobblehead superheroes. Making Wolverine cute defeats the purpose of him and isn't funny either. Credit for me finding affection for distorted guitar is also due to Pete, a roommate in first year university who'd been a bass player in a hair metal band, leaving it when he found another career path and lost his hair, and who didn't have an electric bass or guitar at college. I had an electric guitar I'd gotten for about $150 from Sears catalog, knowing I'd be unable to play trumpet or piano in my tiny room away at school. I had a little $30 plastic amplification thing from Radio Shack that wasn't intended to turn up loud, but Pete loved to turn it up and distort the crap out of the cheap little thing. I pushed record on a portable tape recorder once as he did this.
what would Mrs. Hale have thought if she had heard this? But in Montreal, an age ago and a few years after university, Conrad went on to warn me, you can make your listener depressed and down with you. They'll follow you there, but you can't leave them down there. You have to let them leave on an up note at the end. There is an agreement, an understanding that you will do this. I guess this song was supposed to be that. The recognition that our protagonist is still deep in the dark, solitary underground. Some hint, though, that he is making some use of words to solidify his swirling, sludgy feelings into word sculptures, and also a recognition that moods come and go like tides, so the voice of experience eventually suggests that when things are really intolerable, that mood is going to lift somewhat sometime soon, just as surely as it will then return again sometime. As he did for the song Solitary, addressed in episode 9, Troy did some solo work for me on this song as well. I played some lead too. really wanted to catch me managing a pinch harmonic on tape. As well as him playing lead for me, like everyone else in the 90s, I wanted some jangly, delaying notes in the style of The Edge from U2 to make people relax and go, ah. So I asked Troy to play like The Edge for the end of the song. I wanted the kick drum to sound like a heartbeat in places, Pink Floyd style. This is the first, but certainly not the last time, I tried this out. For years, every time someone was in town or I was visiting them, I collected friends, one after the other, to sing into my computer to make a choir of voices. I wanted to hear all the very different ways that the different people sang. I got my sister. Words can tell the story. Her husband at the time. Words can tell the story. Bill, who sang low. Words can tell the story. And hi. Michael Vetter, can tell the story. His wife Bethany, can tell the story. And our friend Cedar, who I've never known to do anything in other than a sensual way. Words can tell the story. The reality is that the vagaries of life would mean I soon lost touch with most of the folks who sang for me, but at the time, the idea was to make this song feature as many of my friends as I could, not professional musicians necessarily, not people I only dealt with to record for me on a song or two, people I hung out with from time to time, at that point in time at least. I put in more backward masking. 
This time a televangelist giving a warning that many pop songs contain backward masking. You have heard of group after group who worshipfully sing for Satan. They know he is real. God tells us he is not willing that any should perish. And that includes Mick Jagger and Alice Cooper and all of the rock singers. But they have a choice to make. I also had borrowed a 70s analog synthesizer of some kind from a guy named Harold who I worked at Nortel with. I can't remember anything about it except it being in fake wood and having many black dials and switches on it, and it was great for making swooshing white noise. So I put some of that in too. For my own vocals, I tried, as usual, to sing loud and emote and rock out and perform more than I could quite manage, then decided to go in entirely the other direction for once. I'd heard Laurie Anderson singing and wondered how flatly and emotionlessly I could sing this song and it would still fit. Part of the idea was that after the ordeal of the previous song's narrative and still trapped and lost unfathomably deep underground, entombed in my own unconscious psyche, the protagonist was beat up, exhausted, and about done in. So, not a lot of rocked-out vocals required, I thought. Kind of shattering the tempo a bit, too. First, a very, very quiet, emotionally subdued, kind of robotic, but kind of emotionally pent-up lead vocal. Unexpressed opinions hang in the dead air. Soft and anguished beating, they strain, but do not dare. Then a couple of deeper, emotionally flat, very robotic vocals. Hurt and aching hunger fill the empty place, left by all the anger that's twisting. On your face. Then a bunch of higher harmony, emotionally flat, very robotic vocals. Unexpressed opinions hang in the dead air. Soft and anguish beating the strain, but do not dare. Together they made something a bit new. Unexpressed opinions hang in the dead air, soft and anguished beating, they strain, but do not dare. Sounded tired and depressed, a bit Marvin, the paranoid android from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Life, don't talk to me about life. I learned that when you close mic your mouth with a decent mic, you pick up an annoying amount of mouth noise. You have to hope most of that gets lost in there with the instruments. As a kid, I had been amused and fascinated by National Geographic magazine putting little records in their magazines in the form of a black plastic floppy page of the magazine with a hole in the middle that could be torn out of the magazine and played on a record player. 
What a crazy idea. They had the lunar landing on one. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And they had a whole one about humpback whales. I was mesmerized as a child at the idea of enormous beasts singing underwater whose voices, when sped up, sounded like birdsong. There was an atypically interesting Canadian novel written called Whale Music about a burned-out Brian Wilson-style pop musician trying to create an album for whales to enjoy. It was also turned into a low-budget Canadian movie that played on cable for years. I loved the idea, and I'd gone and seen the Rio Statics, an arty Canadian band, play live, so when I found out they'd done the whale music itself for the film, with Martin Tiarelli imitating whale song on his guitar, I was very into it. Whales. Singing behemoths. It was fun to have them sing along with my friends in my song. I thought they added kind of a somber, surreal, alien splendor to it. We had Bill play the bass guitar on this one, and Chris the sound guy put the bass through a guitar effect called a rotovibe pedal, which made it wobbly in interesting ways. I then doubled Bill's wobbly, poinking bass with a more conventional sound. Bill did some guitar too that I made sound like it was being played in an aircraft hangar. The intro to this song had a montage of leftover sounds from previous songs to kind of recap some of what had gone on before. For this, the final song of the album, or maybe the final song on the first half of the double album. There was an over-elaborate drum part Tim had done originally before I had Chris Medcalf play over it. It was fancy and impressive and involved extensive rototom use, so I was very impressed when Tim did it, but felt it fit the eventual direction of the song as bubbling, murky, underwater mopefest less and less well the more I worked on it. Listening back, the original idea was for the intro to include a sample of Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock from the Amok Time episode of Star Trek The Genuine Article. Nowadays, I'd quail to try to get away with fair using something owned by such a big company, but back then... Strips our minds from us. Brings a madness which rips away our veneer of civilization. It is the pawn far...
About the proposed end of the Story of Peter Gray album, an original concept was that this would be edited as if it were a Disney book and record like we'd listened to as kids. This is the story of Peter Pan. We didn't have TV, so these books were our full experience of any number of now-canceled Disney properties. Peter Pan, Song of the South, Dumbo, The Black Hole, all of that good stuff. This is the story of Peter and the Wolf. You can read along with me in your book. In my original concept, my album was to be called Peter the Slaughterer. The artiness or dichotomy or juxtaposition, if you will, so to speak, was that this would sound like a children's storybook being told about a child, but things would get increasingly horrible. Kind of like Tom Baker's The Boy Who Kicked Pigs. So, the story of how sad Peter got would unfold, how he was tormented by these envenomed pink embryonic chicken-looking things tagging along behind him, nibbling on his ankles and poisoning him and robbing him of his energy and will to live, but all told in this warm, friendly voice. Those nasty little pink things can still be seen showing up in some art I used for the podcast, all based on a couple of drawings I did back in the day when I happened to open a book about raising chickens from baby chicks and saw an illustration of a chicken embryo that looked somehow perfect for this. Maybe the monster sound was the sound the nasty little pink things made? More likely the monster baby Chris and I made by slowing the sound of a crying baby down and distorting it over the sound of frogs chirping in the night. told my little niece these were frogs, and she said, <laughs> Those are crickets, not frogs. She was quite wrong about that, of course. And that's still my ringtone for my niece, though at age 16, her voice is now operatically trained and hardly sounds like that anymore. Now, memory is fallible, so I just got the intros to those records from YouTube just now, and I can see what they really said. This is the story of Peter Pan. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Let's begin now. But I hadn't heard those records since childhood back in the day, and in my memory, it was a British woman's voice. And as these were Disney properties, I remembered it as being Tinkerbell ringing her bells to signal page turns. So the intro to my album, The Story of Peter the Slaughterer of Nasty Pink Things, was to say... This is the story of Peter the Slaughterer. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when the little blonde fairy rings his little bells like this. You can see that even back then, I was eager to provide representation for members of the LGBTQ community. No reason Tinkerbell has to be female, now is there? I was working in a group home for the developmentally delayed, cognitively challenged, mentally handicapped shortly before I started recording at Studio B. Now, one such home had a secretary with a charming little voice with a charming little British accent. I heard it every time she answered the phone or called me to arrange my shifts. I asked her to come into the city and read my twisted interstitial stuff for the album that was meant to go between the songs. And one afternoon, very understandingly, she did. 
It was hilarious, but it wasn't as gripping and interesting as I'd hoped, edited in throughout the whole thing, but you can still hear the concept of this being from a dusty old children's record at the start of the album, and at the end of this song and the album proper. Her voice can still be heard promising the next album, which I did write and work on, and which I intend to do season two of the Wicked Podcast about. Always good to end on a cliffhanger. Such pain Words 
happen to Peter? Will he sort out all his little problems? Will things work out all right in the end for our sad little friend? Find out on the next album. <laughs> 